Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December the 15th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, December the 19th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 137th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again. Thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and depression, not enabling it. Tonight, we continue to bring unreported and underreported news regarding the Ukraine-Russia-NATO conflict. Our guest is a military authority with great acumen in the areas that we are interested in pursuing. That would be Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas, streaming live at KOOP.org. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. This is Pedro Gatos. This is Thursday, December the 15th, 2022. And this show will be airing on Monday, December the 19th, 2022. We are very privileged to have returning to Bringing Light into Darkness, Scott Ritter. Thank you, Scott, for rejoining Bringing Light into Darkness. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. For those of you that are not familiar with the depth of Scott Ritter's experience, he was a weapons inspector. He's a writer. He's a lecturer. He was doing weapons inspections from 1991 to 1998 in Iraq. He actually was a news analyst for CNN and NBC until he started sharing information they did not think was appropriate to the narrative that is pushed on the American public. He was born into a military family. He grew up in a military family. He is very well vetted in Soviet history. In fact, his bachelor's degree is in Soviet history. He joined the armed forces, worked in military intelligence as well in the USSR. During the 1991 Gulf War, he served at the Marine Central Command headquarters in Saudi Arabia under General Norman Schwarzkopf. He eventually left the military and joined the United Nations Special Commission on Weapons Inspection in Iraq, as mentioned, between 1991 and 1998. 
He served in that capacity. And before he resigned, he had participated in some 52 inspection missions, heading some 14 of those. So he is very well vetted in forensics and in all of the important things that it takes to really deconstruct the kind of propaganda and the information out there. So when you and I as listeners can easily get duped by certain information, I think based on Scott's experience and dedication to pursuing the truth, he sees very stark contradictions much more quickly than most of us will. But anyhow, with that introduction, Scott, I wanted wanted to maybe start off. There's a recent article, December 14th, in the Russian news agency TASS, that was reporting that Syria is demanding an end to the U.S. military presence in their country. This is something that we seem to forget very quickly as all of our imperial involvements throughout the world are never critically covered by our mainstream press. To the chagrin, or not to the chagrin, to the demise of the majority population's quality of life interests there in Syria and other imperial intervention locations throughout the world. In Syria, they're under very powerful sanctions. According to the Syrian foreign ministry, this blockade and coercive measures of the West against Syria is really tantamount to war crimes, was their statement. They increase the suffering of the people and slow down the process of post-war construction. But in this piece, they wanted to draw the attention of the international community to this plundering of the natural resources of the Syrian people by the United States and associated paramilitary units, many of them al-Qaeda-like groups over the past. It's also instructive because you've spoken to the Russian military strategy as an ally of Syria. They were invited back in 2015 to help them with their war against the United States, uh, their war against the false framing of the moderate opposition, which was really led by these jihadist type forces. But this ministry statement provides data on the losses that Syria has been suffering. And it's really pretty staggering. They estimate Syria has $19.8 billion in losses. That's from the theft of oil, gas and other minerals, as well as wheat, they say. In addition, the bombing of the United States and the Western coalition ostensibly to fight ISIS. Of course, that was not the case. If you understand the truthfulness of that has caused the damage of another additional $2.9 billion. And at the end of the day, the article really indicates the suffering that Syrians also uh, have resulted from these sanctions and such. Anyhow, first off, can you speak a little bit to what most Americans are not aware of, this profile of our involvement in Syria? And then also maybe segue your comments into the Russian military strategies that they led in Aleppo and how, contrary to what we've been told, civilian lives were prioritized, civilian corridors were created, those types of things. And many of those same techniques, I've heard you say, are being used in the current theater in Ukraine. That, that's a lot right there. But can you start with the Syrian profile? And, and again, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I think we need to understand the context of uh, the U.S. involvement in Syria. Uh, The United States frames it as an extension of the global war on terror, so to speak. According to our narrative in 2014, the Islamic State exploded out of the uh, Syrian desert and the western desert of Iraq expanding into Iraq, capturing Mosul, uh, capturing Tikrit, threatening Baghdad moving up in Syria, taking Kobani, taking Palmyra, threatening Damascus, and that the U.S. was compelled to re-engage in Iraq. Remember, we had withdrawn our combat forces, that's in quotations, uh, during the Obama administration in December of 2011, I believe. 
but we never really abandoned the combat mission there. We always retained this major uh, military base in Erbil in the northern part of Iraq in what was constructively called you know, Kurdistan. It's not really Kurdistan, but it aspires to be Kurdistan, an independent entity that you know, has self-governing, etc. cetera. Uh, so the U.S. had this large combat presence in Erbil, and we also in, brought in more forces in into Iraq, and we began driving ISIS back from Baghdad through Tikrit into Mosul, horrible fighting in Mosul, where we killed tens of thousands of civilians. And then uh, we extended the fighting into Syria. I mean, this is where it gets complicated, because we weren't invited into Syria. We just went in. And, and we went in in support of an entity that we called the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. But the fact of the matter is the Syrian Democratic Forces are nothing more than a rebranding of a Kurdish group called the YPG, which is an extension of a larger Kurdish element known as the PKK, uh, which is a, a Turkish-affiliated Kurdish uh, independence movement that has been in violent confrontation with the Turkish government for many decades now. The Turks, who are our NATO allies, view the PKK as a terrorist organization. Indeed, the United States also labels the PKK as a terrorist organization, which means aligning ourselves with the YPG in Syria was problematic unless they renamed themselves, which we got them to do, the Syrian Democratic Forces. As we moved into Syria, we had to dismantle this de facto state that had been created by the Islamic State uh, with their capital in Raqqa. This was a governing body that had taxation, they had health care, they had civil services, and they had income generation through the selling of oil. Uh, in Syria, there are oil fields that are capable of producing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day. ISIS would take the product from these fields and then sell it, usually through Turkey on the black market to generate billions of dollars of income for their organization. So one of the... Can I ask you something real quick on that very subject so you can expand a little bit on that? These were the reports that we were receiving, those of us that were searching for them on a regular basis of these oil tankers, these long, long caravans, these ISIS oil tankers in Syria being led up to the Turkish border. On the one hand, we claim we were fighting ISIS. On the other hand, we were you know, we were allowing them to do this oil thing. In fact, there was leaflet drops when they decided to finally start bombing them to warn these ISIS drivers that we're going to be bombing you now. You know, you got to stop the oil for a while, that type of thing. Can you explicate that a little bit too, that the, the ongoing caravan and the transferring of that? Obviously, we, we had to know what was going on based on the satellite information and that type of thing that would be able to pick that up. Well, first of all, they weren't ISIS drivers. They were primarily Turkish drivers or Syrian drivers driving private commercial vehicles, oil tankers to transport this material, which is one of the reasons why we would drop the leaflets, because these are just men trying to earn a living. You know, they're not part of the political machinations that are taking place in Syria. They're simply you know, truck drivers uh, hauling cargo. ISIS would allow this to occur. They'd take a certain taxation. So basically what was happening is you had the oil fields being operated by Syrian operators. ISIS doesn't have an oil company. There is no oil company in, in the Islamic State. ISIS has gunmen and gunmen go to the oil fields and say, if you're going to produce oil and sell it, we will tax it. You have to give us our cut. And so the Syrian 
nationals would produce oil. They would then load this oil onto these cargo trucks uh, that were driven by non-ISIS people, Turkish drivers, Arab drivers, who would then take it to the Turkish border where the Turks were more than happy to buy this oil at a steep discount. And so ISIS would achieve income from this way. But to call these ISIS caravans is just wrong. ISIS well, didn't own the trucks. But it's kind of like an ISIS mafia-owned deal, right? I mean, th- those caravans don't exist unless ISIS allowed them and profiteered off them. Is that correct? They, they made huge amounts of money off that oil trade, right? Those caravans exist regardless. This was black market oil being done. You know, and a lot of the thing, ISIS just, you're right, was the mafia was the, the mafia of the moment who came in and said that you're going to continue to do this. We're going to provide protection, but we're going to get taxed from this. And the reason why that's important is when we take a look at the current mafia of the moment, which is the United States, which came in and displaced ISIS. But this illicit transfer of oil continues to this day. But at this time, that machinery of black market oil sales is being conducted on behalf of the United States and the Syrian Democratic Forces. The purpose of taking this over was to, one, deny the Islamic State the ability to generate income, and two, to generate income for the Syrian Democratic Forces, to give them a, a tax base uh, that, that they could then derive a budget from and, and have government functions uh, to, to try and create this notion of an independent Kurdish part of Syria. So this, that's what's going on. Uh, this, this oil isn't being sold to the benefit of the United States. You know, we produce a whole lot more oil here in the United States. This is black marketeering that the United States is orchestrating for the benefit of Syrian Kurdish elements who are operating as de facto proxies of the United States. And also the denial, right, Scott, also the denial to to the rightful owners, namely the Syrian government, of the resources. There's no doubt about that. This oil belongs to the Syrian government. But this oil has been stolen for some time now, ever since 2011, when there was this major disruption in Syria, and these demonstrations turned into violence, turns into an insurrection, turns into a you know, de facto civil war. The oil that, that comes from the Syrian desert, the, that income has been denied to the Syrian government. It was taken over by the tribes uh, who then would you know, sell it or at least sell a portion of it on the black market through Turkey. Turkey's always looking for sources of cheap oil. And especially understanding that the pipelines connecting Turkey and Iraq were problematic. And so the, it was in Turkey's interest to have uh, additional supply routes for, for oil. And it basically, it was a pipeline on uh, on trucks, <laughs> you know, convoys of trucks just trucking this oil in. Turks were more than happy to buy that. They'd get middlemen, you know, just a lot of profit, a lot of profiteering, a lot of a lot of hands passing this oil and getting money as a result. It's a giant organized criminal enterprise. And today the United States is at the head of it. But you pointed out the reality. This oil belongs to the Syrian government, belongs to the Syrian people, and they're being denied that source of income. And how many how many military bases do we have there? I mean, those are illegal too. It just seems so amazing that nobody really reports this. That we just plop in and create what what now a couple of military bases there. Um, I mean, certainly nobody will attack it because there are U.S. forces there, and therefore it continues to exist in that capacity of an illegal occupation, right? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how many bases. I, I imagine that fluctuates there. There's several that are what I call uh, "quote unquote" permanent installations, meaning that they're long term. We abandoned some back. Donald Trump was president. We initiated a withdrawal from Syria, 
and we abandoned some of these quote unquote permanent bases. And uh, the Russians actually took one over. It's an interesting video as they come in and, and you see the, the quality of the facility. You know, there's weight rooms, there were video rooms, there were gaming rooms where the soldiers could go play video games and video conference mm-hmm. with their family. Uh, you know, all this stuff was left behind as the Americans withdrew. And I would imagine that the facilities that are in Syria today have a similar, you know, makeup, you know, where American troops are permanently based. I mean, you know, nothing's permanent. Of course, you can withdraw, but these aren't expeditionary locations. These aren't uh, Marines coming in, digging some trenches and deciding they're going to stay there for a couple of days or weeks. These are facilities built for long-term occupation mm-hmm. in Syria. And there is no legal authority for this. There's none under international law. In fact, the United States is violating international law by being in Syria. And there's none under, you know, under American law, too. This is one of the things that Congress has failed to uh, adequately address, which is what is the authority for American troops in Syria? I mean, ostensibly, under the War Powers Act, the president of the United States can initiate some sort of action. Uh, he has 90 days extended to extendable to 180 days to report to Congress about this. But our troops have been in Syria for years, and they're operating under uh, authorization for the use of military force, which is linked to 9-11. There literally is no legal justification, no legal authority for the, the American troops that are on the ground in Syria, and yet they're there. And you know everybody knows it. Uh, Congress knows it, and Congress continues to allow tens of billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money to be spent on sustaining this capability. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that we are a, an occupier and an aggressive nation. It's interesting that we project all this onto a country like Russia. I mean, it's interesting that the power propaganda has been very successful in framing Russia as an aggressor nation, even long before it invaded you know, Ukraine on February of, of this year. Yet its only military bases outside of the former Soviet Union are in Syria. There's one or two of them in Syria because they've been invited in order to help them deal with that ISIS issue and problem and really a U.S.-helped problem. But Joe Loria wrote, I think it was back in March, he was talking about the reporting since the beginning of Russiagate in 2016 that the ultimate U.S. aim has really been to overthrow the government of Vladimir Putin. In fact, he cites a quote from Biden where he actually uses those words, for God's sake, the man cannot remain in power. And then the White House tried to walk it back. But it is interesting that at that time that this is a quote from the White House statement, Russia cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors in the region, end quote. And it just seems to me the height of being hypocritical when you consider that what we have some 700 military bases throughout the world outside of the United States. And as we said, Russia has barely a handful and the U.S. military budget dwarfs all other U.S. spending. It is our foreign policy, not Russia's, that suggests who the aggressor nation really is of the world. This has been the case for many decades, particularly since the end of World War II, as reflected by Dr. King's words of the United States being the greatest purveyor of violence in the world back in 1967. In fact, according to Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, Russia in 2021, their military expenditures were $65.9 billion, while the United States military spending amounted to $801 billion in 2021, which if you do the math is 8.2 times greater than Russia's. What I would ask you to turn to 
weaken Russia. Does that still really help explain, do you think, the ultimate U.S. policy in trying to promote and to continue this war from the very beginning? They've been saying they wanted to weaken Russia, create another Afghanistan for them, that type of thing. It certainly is not the case, but can you pivot to that a little bit? And the other underreported and unreported item that has been left in the background that I think also should really concern people of a world that's being increasingly militarized by the West, by the United States policies, were these biolabs that were discovered. Do you have information that can tell us a little bit more about those biolabs? I realize those are two separate questions, but can you pivot your attention to that? Well, they're both uh, grounded in the same underlying philosophy that governed the American approach towards dealing with Russia in the post-Cold War. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States had a a rethink of uh, its relationship with that which emerged from the wreckage of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation and the former Soviet republics. When the Soviet Union was around, the United States had to deal with the reality of the Soviet Union, a very powerful entity that couldn't be taken for granted, or one that could threaten it could match the US um, you know as a as a global power military power especially but when the Soviet Union collapsed the United States was now looking at a very weakened Russia the economy was a disaster political chaos the transitioning from Soviet authority to now you know presidential authority with democracy that hadn't really grown and developed communists were still in power there, there's a sense of anarchy. And uh, the United States approach was to to step in and encourage this anarchy, to keep Russia down. We exploited their economy to the benefit of the West, not to the benefit of Russia. We helped rewrite laws that allowed this criminal class of entrepreneur to come in and seize control of what had been state enterprises, state industries, and then basically, like robber barons, basically sucked the wealth out of Russia into their offshore accounts and into the coffers of Western nations and their corporations that reside within them. But that, that's really important what you're talking about. I mean, that's why I really enjoy having you on the show. Connected to that, right? And the way we know that everything you're saying is truthful and a factual recount of history is the actual living conditions of the majority populations in the East there after the dissolvement of the USSR. They were horrific. Life expectancy was barely 60. And then you have, you know, Putin, I guess, is really not given proper credit from since 2000 when he got involved to, to now how all of that has changed dramatically. And you're suggesting that the reason that demise occurred was this criminal class of entrepreneurs that were usurping state organizational wealth. Is that right? Well, the reason it occurs is because the United States and the West were encouraging this. Uh, we didn't want a strong Russia. We didn't want Russia to get back up on its feet. We kept talking about promoting democracy. We didn't promote any democracy in Russia. We sustained a leader that we labeled democratic, Boris Yeltsin, who was anything but. Democratic leaders don't put tanks in the street of their national capital to fire on the legislative body, which is what Boris Yeltsin did in October of 1993, right? declaring war against the Russian parliament. That's not a sign of a viable functioning democracy, and yet we supported Boris Yeltsin. Viable democracies don't allow foreign governments and foreign interests to come in and buy an election, which, of course, we did in 1996, uh, keeping Boris Yeltsin in power. Had we not intervened, 
a communist opponent, uh, opposition leader, would have taken over. The communists would have come back, which is the last thing we wanted. So we intervened once again to suppress democracy and to promote this veritable dictator named Boris Yeltsin, who was little more than a colonial administrator for the American empire. And that was the decade of the 90s, uh, the worst decade uh, in in Russian post-war history. So, Scott, just to be clear, it it wasn't just to keep Russia down. Obviously, that was a very huge motive. But at the same time, it should be pointed out that there was huge profiteering going on that was beneficial to certain Western-connected interests to these oligarch and these other Russian profiteering interests. Is that correct? Yeah, Russia is a nation of great mineral resources. And what happened is, you know, Western industries would come in, especially in the oil sector, and get these fantastic deals to develop oil fields in, in Siberia and elsewhere. These deals often came with, you know, huge kickbacks. Uh, the corruption was rampant under the Yeltsin regime. And again, the idea was that the West would be able to get Russian energy at dirt cheap prices and at the same time deny Russia the ability to capitalize upon these resources in order to rebuild a devastated nation. So there's some reason to believe that the goal wasn't just to weaken Russia, but to weaken Russia to the extent that it broke up into constituent parts. Hey, Scott, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. We'll be right back to bringing light into darkness with our special guest, former weapons inspector for the UN, Scott Ritter. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> 